you know, part of what I was looking for before is that we'll all be one when we can all share the same opinions on the important ideas. And that's not the church's vision mm-hmm. of unity. The church's vision of unity is we'll all be one when we all eat at the same table, when we all partake of the one loaf, mm-hmm. one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Hello and welcome to another cathartic episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swain along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Come pay us a visit at chnetwork.org. And if you're interested in the discussions we've been having about what led Ken and I respectively to the doors of the Catholic Church, then please, by all means, come share a little bit of your own story uh, in our online community, which is ch. I'm sorry, community dot chnetwork.org you can get there through chnetwork.org but it's easier if you just go directly community.chnetwork.org ken i'm at the end of a long series of gut spillings uh, having gone through four full episodes and now on a fifth of just unburdening myself and telling you my entire life story and everything that led me to the catholic church I, i need a big nap after these it's funny how you can you keep on referring to your to the story you've been telling as gut wrenching or gut spilling or painful and all that. From my perspective, it's been quite enjoyable. Well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> you know, it means I'm putting on an entertaining show for Ken as he watches me squirm. But um, you don't need to squirm. Just a, a a couple of quick notes before I get into today's topic. Um, one is that. The format of the episodes we've been doing to this point have followed, it's followed the format of our Coming Home Network retreats, which we often do for people who are either currently considering Catholicism or maybe Mm -hmm. have just become Catholic and are trying to figure out where they fit in the church. And if that's you and you're interested in coming on a retreat and going through the same questions that I've been going through, except doing it in a much safer environment where Ken doesn't mock you. Uh, then by all means, come along to chnetwork.org slash retreats. It's always a, an amazing group of people and amazing conversations. So check that out. Um, and the other thing, Ken, that I was going to say is, uh, as we've put out four other episodes, and I've had a bunch of people contact me and say things like, what about this? What about that? <clears throat> and I'm realizing I've left tons and tons and tons of stuff out. I've left out huge chunks of the various arguments that I was going through, huge people that were major influences at various points in this, um, huge obstacles that I had to overcome, and you just can't fit it all. You just can't fit well, it also, all. But you do you what know, you can. If I may, to those who have been emailing you, um, you're, telling, you're telling the story of how you came to become Catholic, you're not presenting a, a a complete case for the Catholic faith. You know, you know, going down every single doctrinal issue and moral issue and proving that it's true from Scripture and history and theology and whatnot. You're telling your story. Well, and so it's going to have these gaps. Yeah, it, when I tell my story, it's going to be the same thing. Well, and as indicated with stuff like uh, our series that we did on justification that yeah. took like what, like four, fourteen episodes. Like these are not things that you can answer in an email very often. But uh, no, but we not. do what we can. Well, in fact, that was the point of us switching over to telling stories now is that we've done about 75 episodes 
in which we were going into some real depth on some of the most foundational issues that divide Protestants and Catholics, and doing complete series of studies on sola scriptura, sola fide, baptismal regeneration, the Eucharist, things like that. And so, yeah, that was the very point of this whole thing, is to back off from that a bit and just tell in a more personal way um, our the story of our own journey of, of faith and walking with Christ. So anyway, what are we talking about today? I have no idea. Yeah, today I figured uh, we would wrap up um, kind of the, the series of episodes where I share my story by talking a little bit about something that, that may not be really immediately apparent to people who maybe come from a background like I do mm-hmm. or um, who are looking at the Catholic Church from the outside. And, and that is to take a look at some of the things that were core and intrinsic to my life as a Christian before, specifically in the tradition that I came from, and how those things were expanded upon and elevated and really brought into their, um, into their full fruition in the context of the Catholic Church. I think that sometimes there's this perception out there that when people become Catholic from some other background, they renounce everything that was in their past. That was not I what I had to do at all. I renounce the devil and all of his nefarious ways. I also renounce right. anything and pops. everything. Yeah, and any, I, I also yeah. renounce anything and everything I ever believed as a Protestant. No, that's not it. Yeah, you do have to renounce the pomps, though. The pomps <laughs> must be renounced. What about the circumstance? Uh, but yeah, well, maybe that too. Okay. The circumstances is what causes you to have to renounce the pomps. But uh, that being said, there was so much in my tradition that I found, like I knew I was hungry for and knew was core to, to what I needed to, to believe and mm-hmm. live as a Christian, but it just really, mm-hmm. once I became Catholic, those things were just brought uh, into, it was like looking at them through a magnifying glass or like being seeing them in black and white and now suddenly seeing them in color. Mm-hmm. So I have four different kind of key areas. There are a lot more than this. Uh, but I decided to focus on four. And the first one is that my love for Scripture and my understanding of Scripture were absolutely core to who I was as a young evangelical kid growing up, uh, as a Bible quizzer, right? I was a hardcore Bible quizzer. I crushed people on the quick recall. We had these quick recall contests uh, where our church and other churches would assemble these teams, and we'd be given a couple of books like First and Second Corinthians, Right, mm-hmm. and uh, we'd meet at uh, some Nazarene church in Northwest Ohio, and we would sit on these buttons, and they'd start the question, and whoever jumped up first could get the question, you mm-hmm. know. And if you jumped before they finished the question, then you had to complete the question, right? And there was this trick to them where if you could just flex your cheek in the right way, you wouldn't even have to jump, and you could set off your buzzer, and then you could nail it before anybody else could possibly get their rear end off the button. I was the master of such things. Um, I love scripture in and out, as I think I mentioned to you, Ken. I, especially after some scandal hit in the churches I was going to, I devoured the Bible and desired to understand it. But when I became Catholic, it was like I had been, it, it was like trying to eat food with my hands and suddenly someone gave me a fork. (laughs) <laughs> right or or being in being in a room walking around with a candlelight and then somebody flips on the light switch mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it, that that's kind of the experience that i had when it came to scripture because no longer was i in this situation where the book that was the most important book in my entire life and had been mm-hmm. for as long as i can remember was something that i had to pick up and read and figure out it was like suddenly i had access to the greatest minds in christianity mm-hmm 
for 2,000 years to help me explore what it means. Um, but that's only one aspect of it. Yeah, you had the, the other aspect. Key. Well, that but that's the second aspect of it. So, okay. I had the interpretive, like friends, like it opened up this library of people who had also read the Bible, who were a lot smarter and holier than me through the centuries. But I also know now had the Rosetta Stone for understanding mm-hmm. how the Bible should be understood. So it wasn't just mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. oh, I collected a whole bunch of you know classic writings from the Desert Fathers on how I should better mm-hmm. pray the Psalms. It was like. Holy cow, I now understand like how the puzzle whole the whole puzzle fits together. And I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Okay. Um I could give you hundreds, but I'll give you two that I was kind of thinking of as as we were putting this together. So I'm gonna start with First Corinthians twelve, verses twelve through twenty-six, the famous passage where Paul is talking about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. So Paul says this. It's a starting at verse twelve. He says, and I'm reading, by the way, from my old NIV Bible with the little gold. My name, their thingy. Got it from Family Christian Store. Yep. Uh, But it says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, mm-hmm. it wouldn't for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. I heard this preached on a hundred times, right, growing up. And what for me, I read this, I'm like, I get it, Paul. Christians have different talents and treasures, and everybody can't be the same kind of person. We can't all be missionaries, you know, we can't all be Sunday school mm-hmm. teachers, and we have to respect the fact that God has called us all to different kinds of things. But as a Catholic, now I have a robust ecclesiology that helps me understand what it means, like in the context of a visible church mm-hmm. for us to all be parts of one body. Um, so I had previously been envisioning this like, you know, there are different kind of Christians who just have different kind of talents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now I was seeing it as there is this actual thing. The church is like an actual thing. And in it, it is like a body moving around. And there's the African arm and the Latin American leg. And it's all in this like symbiotic motion. And so I got the part about us having different talents and sort of thing. I I didn't get the part about how, you know, when one part suffers, they all suffer. Like Mm. the way that I do now, when I understand what happens when priests in Nigeria are kidnapped and shot, like that's not those people over there. That's us. That's Mm -hmm. the church, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas before in my ecclesiology, I thought of, you know, my denomination and American Christianity and people over there were the mission field, right? Mm -hmm. But now this ecclesiology brings 1 Corinthians 12 to light uh, and to life in a brand new way. And even the way that Paul kicks it off is something I would have just skipped over. I would have thought that Paul said, yeah, we're all Christians here, right? So we should understand that we have different talents Mm -hmm. and different abilities of the body of Christ. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says... 
so it is with Christ, for we were all baptized into one spirit and all given the one spirit to drink. That's sacramental language mm-hmm. that says we were all initiated into this body through sacramental means. Mm-hmm. So like, here's a passage that I read a thousand times, but because I now have so much meat on the bone from understanding what it means to be Catholic, like I don't have verses that I pass over and skip past because I'm just looking for like the lesson here. Like now something like that just like yeah. leaps off the page with like vivid imagery in a way that it never did before, if that makes sense. Yeah. Let me give you another one um, just because it, I think this one sort of illustrates mm-hmm. um, the idea that I just didn't have. I loved every page of this book, right? This is like at the, at the center of who I was as a Christian. But there are a whole bunch of things in here that I just didn't have a shelf to put right right it on right like i read past or i was like reading for the lessons and and there was stuff that was like obviously clear and that's the stuff that i that i latched onto. but there was some stuff where i was like well that's a weird thing mm-hmm. i suppose i get it in some abstract way but um mm-hmm. now how can how can i apply that in the present day i want to i want to key in on matthew chapter 19 the parable of the rich young ruler okay here's an example of something i also heard up preached on a million times um Verse 16, now a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. And Jesus replied, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, and what do I still lack? And then Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The young man heard this. He went away sad because he Mm -hmm. had great wealth. And there's more to that story. Uh, I heard it preached on all the time. Like, well, Jesus doesn't want everybody to actually give up their possessions. They're just saying, don't love your possessions more than Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that's true, but this It always bugged me because I feel like Jesus is saying more in this passage. Like he's really is saying to that rich man, yeah, you buddy, you're going to have to give up, Mm -hmm. give up everything. But he doesn't turn around to his disciples and then say, "Um, also, anybody who wants to follow me is going to have to sell all their possessions. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. But it's clear that at least some of the people who followed Mm -hmm. him were going to have to do that. And we didn't have a mechanism in my church's. Uh, in place yeah. for anybody who wanted to sell all the possessions and follow Christ. Except we do in the Catholic Church, right? We have mm-hmm. all these people who've taken vows of poverty. They've given up everything. They mm-hmm. have like no possessions, right? I think they got a social security number, right? And <laughs> a few other things. But um, there are people who have literally done what this says. There's a mechanism mm-hmm. inside the Catholic Church for people to do this. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read the account of St. Anthony of the Desert, you know, kind of the first real great hermit in the church that really launches mm-hmm. that revolution. I mean, there were hermits before, but but he hears this specific passage and he's like, oh no, that's that's yeah, me. That's me. And he literally does it. You know, I thought the same I thought the same thing that you're talking about here with regard to celibacy, too, because in the New Testament there are clearly some passages that uh, give us a seed for this idea that there would be some people that would commit themselves to celibate li- uh, lives in order to uh, in order to serve the kingdom of God, right? We find it in St. Paul. We find it in the Gospels as well. And I and I often thought that in my Baptist context there was no 
there was no um, framework for this, you know. And um, if someone had, if a young man had stood up in my congregation at the end of the service and said something like, "I commit my life to, uh, you know, to celibacy for the kingdom of God," people in my congregation would have just thought he was a weirdo. Would it have thought, yeah. okay, here's one of these weird guys that's just taking this passage in the Bible literally, but but there there was no framework for him. And yet I looked at the Catholic Church and not only was, I mean, there was a framework, like you said, the monastic life of giving up your possessions, committing yourself to celibacy, the priesthood, that has existed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds all the way back to St. Anthony of the Desert. There's a whole context for it, a whole living, fleshed out reality for it. And the same kind of thing you're talking about. Right, or or even some of those passages that uh, that have a beautiful mystery to them that are very uh, important passages at important moments mm-hmm. where Jesus breathes on the apostles and says, "Receive receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they yeah. are forgiven. <laughs> Whose sins you retain, they are retained." I'm like, "Wow, what is Jesus doing in that room? Must have been a crazy thing between him and the apostles. Obviously, like, I know, you know, who but." Who but God alone can forgive sins, right? Yeah, is, and, and to boil... Like, what do you do with that, you know? Yeah, and to boil that whole thing down to, oh, well, all that Jesus means is that they're going to go out and preach the gospel, and those who believe it will be have their sins forgiven, you know? That's not what he says. He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Spirit. Right. Whoever sins you forgive, therefore... It's just, it's not... Yeah. That, that's well, and, and ultimately... Yeah, and it ties all back to Acts chapter 8, um, which now finally mm-hmm. makes sense to me in in a brand new way. Um, you know, previously when I heard people preach on Philip and the Ethiopian, it's like, look, here's an example of how from the very beginning, um, the apostles and the people they trained went out and were preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. But that's not the real takeaway from Philip and the, and the Ethiopian eunuch. The real takeaway is that here's this guy who in Acts 8 is reading a passage from Isaiah and doing exactly what 99% of the Sola Scriptura people out there are doing, which is trying to figure it out mm-hmm. on his own steam. Mm-hmm. And he can't do it. And here comes Philip, the deacon, trained by the apostles, given authority to go preach and teach by the apostles mm-hmm. and to serve by the apostles, and he comes with the interpretive key. So mm-hmm. with the aid of the church, the Ethiopian eunuch now has the faith to understand it there's there's a hundred like this like the 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 road to emmaus right where now that you understand what the mass is it's the proclamation of the word of god followed by the breaking of bread and the holy eucharist and you understand it on the road to emmaus jesus is explaining the scriptures and then he sits down and in the breaking of the bread he disappears from their sight and they talk about how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread like that's a really kind of interesting and cool passage as a Protestant who loves the Bible, but it's a mysterious and deeply sacramental passage mm-hmm. if you have the Mass. Um, I could give you 500 more examples, but that'd be the whole episode, and I can't do that. You could do 500 more in just like 15 minutes? Well, not within the span of 15 minutes. It would need more okay. than 15 minutes to do it. All right. But I'm just trying to like yeah, drive home the point. fact that like that the, the yeah. my whole scriptural sensibility, that it was given to me, that love mm-hmm. uh, was given to me in my and my tradition has just been through the roof. And there's so um, many passages. Another Ma- thing too. Matthew 16 is another passage where the whole Peter and the rock and the whole thing just becomes much bigger and richer and more, just a lot more than what you used to read it as being. Yeah, all the apologetics go to passages, obviously. Yeah. But even so, like I say, some of these that are just like really familiar passages that mm-hmm. aren't necessarily apologetic in quality, just 
take on new life. But a second area is um, an elevated sense of the dignity of the human person, and especially when it comes Hmm. to marriage and family questions. So I was always uh, taught to uh, be against abortion, right? And I was always taught that marriage was sacred. Um, And I saw even in my own world, not so much people moving on the abortion question, but I did see people moving on the marriage question where I just didn't hear divorce preached on very much anymore. Right. I think because there was an understanding that more and more people in the congregations I was part of had dealt with that and that it was a painful thing to preach on. And so it just wasn't talked about as much. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, when it came to families, um, there was a natural understanding that it was a matter of good stewardship to find out what kind of contraception you were going to use when you got into your Christian marriage and and that sort of thing. <clears throat> and I didn't realize that there was a moral component to this question at all. Mm-hmm. But coming to the Catholic Church and realizing that I thought that I had the ammunition to defend the sanctity of unborn life by looking to the scriptures and saying, thou shalt not, shalt not kill, and just pointing to you know, the duty to to care for children. I didn't realize I had this whole weight of natural law mm-hmm. and I had like centuries of teaching in regard to this. And on top of that, when it came to marriage, I didn't realize I had this, that how much I had cut my own legs off by accepting contraception as part of the question. Like I'd already, like why should I be surprised if society is like redefining and even like doing away with even the concept of marriage if we've already taken one of the primary ends of marriage mm-hmm. out of the equation and said well that's just a matter of stewardship so understanding that the catholic church had and those are just two examples by the mm-hmm. way um this expanded to my understanding of of a growing unease with the question of of war and the death penalty and mm-hmm. um the way that you know, the poor were treated in our society, like uh, the whole Catholic social picture, Mm -hmm. I was really starting to realize how it was all connected. And, and that even, even by putting the sanctity of unborn life at the top of the heap, that actually strengthened my position on all the other questions, Mm -hmm. uh, including questions of protecting the environment, right? Like, why does the church say that we have to care for creation? Well, because when you dump chemicals in the river, the poor people die first, (laughs) right? The poor people get sick first. The mothers carrying unborn children are the ones who uh, have higher infant mortality rates when you abuse the environment. Not like the, oh, well, we got to save the snail darters versus who cares. Mm -hmm. It was more like Mm -hmm. this huge picture of how human beings made in the image of God are the crown of creation. So that ought to affect the way that we handle every single issue all the way down, um, including the way that we understand marriage, uh, including the way uh, that we understand, um, well, theology of the body was really kind of a, mm-hmm. a, a big part of this too. Theology of the body tied into Catholic social doctrine. It elevated all the things that I thought I had as someone who was you know, kind of moral in my ethical formation on the, the main hot button moral issues. I thought I knew what I was talking about. I realized I only had like like 5% of what I needed to know to make those arguments. And the church just opened the floodgates. Mm-hmm. Like so for instance, I grew up in Christian youth groups in the 90s and this is going to this is what's going to really generate all the comments on this episode. I grew up in purity culture, right? As uh it's often called the 
don't have sex before marriage. The true love waits. Everybody's signing pledges, you know, mm-hmm. that they're not going to have premarital sex. And um, looking back, that was a morality without a theology. And as a result, a bunch of people um, kind of had a misunderstanding about the role of men and women in God's plan. There was a very kind of like, well, if you're a woman who screws up or if you're a woman who puts yourself in a situation and then someone makes a victim out of you, well, you should have known better, and now you're damaged goods forever, and now you have to look your husband in the eye every day knowing that you, you know, got into a vulnerable situation. Like, this whole weird morality without a theology, suddenly, instead of that, I had the real vision of man and woman that is offered by the theology of the body. That's this whole huge picture of what it means to be made in the image of God, from Eden to the cross to the book of Revelation, and that just expanded all these ideas um, and really made me sympathetic to people who had had a bad experience in a way that I was not as sympathetic before because what I had before was like a morality without a theology. Now having a theology, you have the vision of what the good, the true, and the beautiful is, and you know that we're all broken and striving towards that, and so that's where you're working. What you're working for. It's, it's hard to describe the damage that purity culture did and the 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 repair that theology of the body did to that vision, but it was huge. Okay, since you've said a few times a morality without a theology, and you mentioned the theology of the body, can you, in a sentence or two, tell those listening what that is because they may not know it all. Yeah, well, John Paul II couldn't do it in a sentence. He did it in uh, several volumes and audiences. Okay, but, then, uh, the, okay the, then make it a the, make it a phrase then. Make it a phrase then. <laughs> sure. No. I mean, the cliff notes no. of it is that John Paul II uh, devoted a series of audiences to uh, basically trying to understand what it is that our bodies tell us about what it means to be made in the image of God, and mm-hmm. that has ramifications for um, marriage. It has re- ramifications for family life mm-hmm. it has ramifications for the sacramental life it, have, it has ramifications for what it means that jesus himself took on a body it's this whole question of what it means to be made in god's image and it it has um uh, it extends itself through the way that we treat um our neighbors how we treat the least of these how we treat creation which we were given to care for i mean the best way yeah. to say it is matter matters right so you're talking um, about and the incarnation about, has implications but you're talking about natural law as it applies to the human person and body right right another way of saying it right and okay and and, and i'm doing a terrible job of, of of doing this but if you look up uh, i mean there's so many great yeah. um tools on theology of the body including uh the theology of the body institute um and uh, I would encourage you to check out their materials. But but even uh, you know, pick up the compendium of uh, of Catholic social doctrine, and and you'll find a whole bunch of mm-hmm. things that really tie it all together. Essentially, what what Catholicism did is took all these issues that I had moral stances on, and it showed me that they were all connected to one another in this cohesive framework in a way that I didn't have before, in a way that I thought, well, this is the battle over marriage. This is the battle over the sanctity of life. This is the battle against poverty. This is the battle over mm-hmm. just versus unjust war. And it put them all together. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Okay. You want number three? Yeah. Where are you going? Where am I going? That's a very good question. Uh, so um, the third kind of key area that was elevated and expanded upon, um, you know, something that was dear to me that I found a full flowering of in the church 
is that whole idea of reading dead people and uh, gravitating towards kind of classic and timeless wisdom. You know, I was taught to, um, even in my own congregations, taught to revere the hymns of Charles Wesley, right, mm-hmm. and Isaac Watts, and even Fanny J. Crosby, right? Um, that was instilled in me that there were that there is value in looking to previous generations and drawing upon their wisdom. And I was already doing that with C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot and Dorothy Sayers and Dostoevsky and a few others, um, even with some of the Protestant-friendly authors, right, like St. Augustine and Chesterton, as I mentioned here, um, and Tolkien. But when I became Catholic, it was like you had been in a bookstore and somebody brought you to the back and said, well, do you want the secret room where we've got the good stuff? And you're like, cool, mm-hmm. they're going to open a cabinet with like these good things. In it. And instead they open it up to a room that's 500 times the size of the room that you were in before. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, and that was, that was overwhelming, but it was exciting. It was like opening mm-hmm. a door to a, a fantasy land, right? That, that I no longer had to be bound by stuff that had been written since the 1800s by people who were born speaking English, right? Because that was yeah. my box. Yeah. And suddenly it was everything from around the globe and across time by people who spoke native Greek or native Spanish or native French, um, or native German, like all of it. And people who are speaking all those languages as their primary languages today. Yeah, and this is just we're still putting out incredible stuff. This is just a part of what it means to be to realize yourself a member of a universal church of, of a global church, and also you know a, a church that goes back in time all the way to the apostles. Whereas, whereas you know in in my tradition and in most Protestant traditions, you think of the Church of Jesus and the Apostles, and then there's this this big gap. Right after the apostles, there's this giant gap that goes approximately 15 centuries until, you know, Jan Hus and w- John Wycliffe, and then you got Luther and Calvin, and these guys come. Um, but then since Protestantism was so fractured and had been so fractured over the 500 years since, you didn't even relate to all of that. You didn't think of yourself as a part of a family that includes all the Anglicans or includes all the, uh, you know, all the Nazarenes and Lutherans. Well, we we cherry-picked C.S. Lewis, right? We would yeah, cherry yeah. pick Lewis from the Anglicans. Yeah, and you cherry pick out, you know, Luther and Calvin, uh, you know, but, but yeah, you mainly gravitate toward your own language, and you gravitate toward uh, the most recent centuries, you know, where I where I know know a lot of people who their their idea of going deep in history was, uh, you know, D. L. Moody. Right. You know. Right. You know, and I very often when people tell me, you know, you got to know your history, um, in these contexts, they meant. Mm-hmm. You got to understand the American Revolution and the Civil War, and yeah. you know, <laughs> like that's what they meant uh, in those conversations. You got to know your history, otherwise, you don't know that the founding fathers intended this to be, you know, a nation of freedom and Christianity. Right. Know your history did not go take you back very far in most of the conversations I had. Nobody was like, "You got to know your history, or you won't understand." what Thomas Aquinas was trying to say when he was reviving Aristotle for the Western world. Right, right. Like, you got to know your history so you understand the kind of disrepair that Western Christendom is in when St. Francis of Assisi started this revolution of mendicant friars. You got to know your history so you understand what Benedict of Nursia introduced into the world and saved Western civilization with the monastic movement as Rome was falling. Like, those were not the things that people meant when they were saying you got to know your history in the context 
right, right. that I was in. Yeah, or going um, all the way back to Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp and Tertullian and Justin Martyr. Or, you know, you got to know your history. You got to have read Against Heresies by Irenaeus to, to understand the biblical theology of the church in the second century. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. So your so, analogy is great about, about hey, let me show you the good stuff. And you go and you open a little closet and the room is like a million times bigger than the one you were in. Yeah. That's right. And, and also understanding, too, that so much of what I learned in terms of history was through a very particular lens. It was the lens mm-hmm. of American kind of like, hey, geography, like where America is always the heroes. And... Mm-hmm. Prior to that, it was like the English are always the heroes, and and so that was the kind of the 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 story that comes down. So mm-hmm. the Spanish are always the bad guys. Rome is always like, you know, perpetuating the dark Evil. ages. Um, the 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 uh, yeah, it, it's it's a lot of that kind of thing, and you don't realize. So like for instance, Fox's Book of Martyrs was hot. You know, it was a, mm-hmm. you know, a great way to learn about how Christians had been persecuted through the centuries. And in fact, what you get in there is like, and I'm oversimplifying because it's been a long time since I read Fox's Book of Martyrs, is that you get, you know, Polycarp of Smyrna, and then you fast forward to all the people that Bloody Mary killed, right? <laughs> right? right. It's all the, all the people who were killed by Catholics. That's who's in the Book right. of Martyrs. Right. There's more, but, um, right. but yeah, I mean, you just, and, and that to me is one of the most exciting things on a daily basis is to look at the calendar and see which saints are on the calendar because it's never just one person on the on right. the calendar for yeah. the feast. It's always like a couple dozen, and you start digging in and you're like, "Oh wow, um, Blessed Peter Torot was, you know, interned in a Japanese camp during World War II because he was a catechist for his New Guinean people, and they thought that Christianity." was a symbol of Western dominance, so they persecuted Peter, but Peter preached despite it and was martyred. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I didn't know anything about New Guinea Christian history. <laughs> as far as I know, they didn't have the gospel till like we started sending them missionaries in the 70s or something. You know, like it just opened up this whole world mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. you know, St. Francis Xavier preaching in India, of the, the missionaries in Latin America, of the missionaries mm-hmm. in North America, Isaac Jokes and Companions, of, of people throughout the centuries uh it just but that plays into my fourth point okay um ken which is that one of the things that bugged me the most as a christian in these conversations about you know what does the bible really mean and and how do we you know solve some of these problems of of disunity i had that desire for unity i did have that desire for all christians to be one Mm -hmm. i wanted to be part of a christianity that transcended time and space. And as I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago, I wanted to see if I could even create a movement within Christianity that would revolutionize it and bring everybody mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. as every reformer before me has wanted to do. <laughs> right. right? Uh, and instead has just founded another schismatic sect. Um, but in the course of doing that, I realized that in my desire for unity, all my things that I was pushing for were just my personality magnified. Mm. And looking back, I start to realize, um, and this is as I'm becoming Catholic, I start to realize, and I realize this, you know, it's as clear as day to me today, that all my life, if I was selecting churches based on the preaching I liked and the music I liked and the fellowship um, of the congregation, 
then by nature I was going to be picking churches that were full of people who were into the same music I was, mm-hmm. um, who were into the same ideas that I was, who very often often were from the same economic class I was, um, maybe the same race mm-hmm. that I was, um, probably the same age that I was, and that's probably tied back to the music too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. All these people, and it's no wonder that those congregations were so much friendlier than the Catholic Church is now, at least the way I experienced it, because it already started mm-hmm. um, from the very beginning with me going to a place where everybody had everything in common before they even set foot in the church. So I was naturally going to these churches that were full of people who looked like me because we all had the same things in common before we ever stepped into the building together. Right, right. It was as though you'd, it was as though you'd invited over your 15 best friends over to your house. Of course, it's going to be good fellowship. They're already, they're already your 15 best friends. You, you all agree on politics. You agree on music. You agree on everything. These are the people who get it, right? These are yeah. the people who get it, get it. And if, if everybody just got it like these people, then we'd have you know this great renewal when in fact everybody would be really boring if they were all like us. Whereas in the Catholic Church, this desire for unity had a mechanism to hold together different groups of people but mm-hmm. also keep them unified. Yeah, and, and it was a deep, it was a deeper unity. It was like having a family gathering with all the uncles and aunts from around the world and grandma and grandpa who see a yeah. lot of things differently, who all have different views on many things, you know, and yet their their family is right. a, is a much broader yeah, unity. It, and it's the objectivity of the Eucharist. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, part of what I was looking for before is that we'll all be one when we can all share the same opinions on the important ideas. And that's not the church's vision mm-hmm. of unity. The church's vision of unity is we'll all be one when we all eat at the same table, when we all partake of the one loaf, mm-hmm. one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? There's this sacramental objectivity mm-hmm. that drives the unity. Mm-hmm. And so because that's at the core, that wasn't at the core of the unity I was seeking before. The unity I was seeking was all people who kind of like, it wasn't even that they agreed on the main ideas, it was that they agreed on the same emphases, mm-hmm. right? Um, we all kind of wanted to emphasize the same things within Christianity. That's what it was. That's when we'd mm. be one. But because of the objective nature of the sacrament that binds the church together through the Eucharist, which I mean, that's what the priesthood is there for. That's why bishops are put in places to bring us the sacrament that creates mm-hmm. unity. Because of that, when somebody like you know Saint Dominic is trying to start a religious order with a certain emphasis, but he does it in the context of the unity of baptism and the rest of the sacramental program, he doesn't create a new denomination. He creates a movement within the church. Mm -hmm. Francis, when he wants to emphasize simplicity and poverty and all these other things, he doesn't create a new denomination because Mm -hmm. he's creating it with the Eucharist as the primary point of reference. And the apostolic chain that brings us the Eucharist is on his radar and at the forefront of what he's doing. The Carmelites the same way. A um, hundred different movements throughout the centuries that have founded spiritual traditions that are within the Catholic context, they have all stayed Catholic because the, the Catholic Church has room for that stuff. Mm-hmm. So long as it's always connected back to the to the Eucharist. Um, 
and that's a unity I was hungry for, but I didn't have a way to to advance any. I'd, I'd taken it as far as I could take it in my previous context, and that's a, something that's very difficult for people to understand because people will sometimes, you know, I'll talk about the divisions in Christianity, and and some people who don't understand Catholicism will be like, "Well, you guys got a bunch of divisions in Catholicism too. It's basically the same thing." I'm like, "No, it's not the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same thing." Mm-hmm. When people leave your church, they don't write into the local newspaper 25 years later and saying, you know, as a lifelong Baptist, I blah, blah, blah. No, they're not Baptist anymore once they leave. Mm-hmm. When a Catholic leaves and leaves mad, they're going to write in 25 years later to the editor and say, well, as a lifelong Catholic, I blah, 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 because that has taken some kind of hold of them. And they may disagree with it. They may be at complete odds with it. They may call themselves a Catholic and go do things that are the exact opposite of what a Catholic ought to be doing and be proud of it. Mm-hmm. But there's something that ties them back. Um, and they may go to hell, right? <laughs> but they were a baptized Catholic, and that sticks on your soul. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bond of unity that, well, you emphasized, that makes it so frustrating but also so mysterious at the same time. You emphasized the the um, objective nature of the Eucharist, which is which is good. But there are more objective things too. There's the objective hierarchical structure of an, of an actual visible church, which you came back to. So there's an actual visible organization with a hierarchy and a structure, apostolic succession, the papacy, and within that, the priesthood and the sacraments and the Eucharist. So, I mean, all of this forms this objective unity that is there whether you're whether you love it or whether you're grumbling and angry and you want to leave it and go somewhere else still there's this objective unity that's there yeah and and jesus sets up a mechanism uh to perpetuate the eucharist Mm -hmm. and that's what the whole structure is for yeah yeah right because at the same last supper where he initiates the eucharist and says do this and remember to me He's also telling a certain group of people to do this in remembrance mm-hmm. of him. And then he is telling those same people, as the Father has sent me, so I mm-hmm. sent you. And then St. Paul says, what I have entrusted you, you go and trust to yeah. faithful people. Um, and and yes. don't forget the gift that was given to you in the laying on of hands. It's, it's all part of this whole, mm-hmm. whole thing. And you can get mad at it, and you can get real mad at it. Um, but it's a... It's a mechanism. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, there's so many problems in Catholicism. I don't understand why why people stay. And, you know, all the time people say, you know, what mm-hmm. keeps you Catholic? And, you know, I, I hesitate to write responses to those kinds of, you know, sort of public questions. But I can tell you this, as bad as it can be with the conflicts and the disunity and, and the frustration inside the Catholic Church, out there, it's a wild, wild west. Mm-hmm. And there is no... There's no anything to tie anything together except just the strongest personality in the room at a given moment. And and I thought that being a stronger personality with stronger ideas would be a basis for unity, and it can never be. Mm-hmm. It just can never be. And so that desire for unity I had and was hoping that the force of my personality would help to bring about, it just seems like such a weird pipe dream compared to the unity that's available across time and around the globe uh, and, and actually including dead people who have gone before that I find in the Catholic Church. I'm just thinking about your phrase by the force, by the force of my personality. I'm, I'm just thinking even in a family, 
you put a man and a woman together and put four or five or six kids there and you don't have the force of the force of personality to create unity even even there it's got to be more than that it has to be a, a deeper it has to be an objective unity yeah 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 and All right and that's uh that's a unity that christ prayed for um yeah i mean the I'm leaving out a hundred different things. All of my Wesleyan friends are going to be like, well, what about holiness? You know, did church make you want to be more holy? I'm like, well, yeah, we got the universal call of holiness. We got the community of saints. We've got, you know, the sacrament of reconciliation um, to keep you on the path. Also, I'm terrible at holiness. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't look to me as a, as a good model of how to, how to achieve it. But, you know, there's, there's a hundred other things that, that have been elevated and fulfilled um, that were so important to me. Um, a personal relationship with Christ. Um, there is, it, it's hard to describe how personal your relationship with Christ is when you're like eating him body, blood, soul, and divinity every Sunday, right? Uh, and a hundred other things, a hundred other things. Um, but those are the four yeah, kind of main areas yeah, I wanted to touch on today. You could have divided these up into two today and in the, the other two next week and filled in more of those details, but but I got it. Well, good. So are you wrapping up with this? I think I am, Ken, but you know what that means? That means that it's your turn next. That's good. Uh, And I get to to have a good time at your expense, starting with the next episode. And uh, we get to dig into your past and and find out how in the world you ended up, first of all, uh, who thought it was a good idea to let you preach from a Baptist pulpit before we get into anything about, uh, you know, how you came to the Catholic Church. So I'm excited to hear your story again. Okay. I've heard pieces. Oh, yeah, you have. But I've never heard it on this level of depth. Okay. Good thing. I mean, good deal. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, when we get into Ken's story in earnest, then uh, I, I, I just, I thank you for your patience with me as I've... Uh, gone deep into the oh you're welcome i have never had to i have never had to display patience like these weeks with you never you're so i appreciate it take so much time off of purgatory (laughs) you're welcome because of having (laughs) you're welcome having heard my story in this context please do come visit us at chnetwork.org again community.chnetwork.org is our online community um if you want to find out uh how to engage with us and maybe share pieces of your own story maybe even share the same kinds of stages that that we've shared in these past few episodes and uh, if you want to go on a coming home network retreat where they we discuss these sequence of events uh in a group of people and especially if you're a pastor if you're a pastor from another christian tradition uh, we have scholarships available for pastors and we would love to connect with you on that uh, that's chnetwork.org slash retreats. And while you're at it, um, if you are someone who wants to generously support this work and support us as we help um, these people who are coming uh, towards the church uh, with fellowship and encouragement and other stuff, then uh, please do go to chnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks so much, Ken. Yeah. You're next. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>